0: Dora app and listen to my Kevin Tully channel. How about that? Come on. Hey, we want to dismiss our kids for a workshop. Come on, make some noise for our children. We like to make some noise for our kids. There you go. We're excited about what God's at work doing in their lives, in their hearts, in their destinies, in their futures. Come on, that that was great, wasn't it? That song, my heart's all stirred up. I know what you guys are thinking. Why don't you sit down and stop talking and let him play some more, right? Hey, so you know we like to do some giveaways every week at the City Life Church. So you're going to have to work for it a little bit tonight. Come on, sometimes we make you work for it. Somebody take a stab at explaining the meaning of the title of the series, Rivers. Who's a taker? Anybody? Come on, i got a $5 Starbucks gift card here waiting for you. Anybody? Come on, we've been in it. This is our fourth fourth week. No takers? All right, come on, Amanda, a brave soul. Okay. Going us, and of us have that come on, that's good. That's it. Come on, give it up for Amanda Silva. Yeah, she said this idea that, that Rivers is... The impact that we should have in this world is that our lives should be life-giving to those around us. And the only way that that can happen is if we have the life of God inside of us and are intentional about what we call the 12 pathways and that those pathways are the conduits of that life flowing out of us into the lives of people around us. You couldn't have been more right, Amanda, so good for you. Come on. So here are the 12 pathways that we talk about at our church. Scripture, worship, fasting, accountability, gathering, relationship, prayer, reaching, generosity service, stewardship, and rest. And we talk about those so often, about how they bring life to us, and they most certainly do, but this summer is about how each one of these 12 bring life to the people around us. In the first chapter of John, the Gospel of John, he writes, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And if we have the life of God inside of us, and we do, if we've made a vow of devotion to Christ, we're going to be talking about that tonight, then the same life that was in him is in us. And the impact that we should have on our world should be no different than that of Christ himself. We should be life-giving to people around us. In you is life, and your life should be the light to The world, And that's what this series is about. And we're praying and hoping and trusting by the time we get to the end of this summer, we're going to wrap up this series the first weekend in September, that the impact that you're having on the world around you is just going to start to climb. That you're going to get a vision for the kind of impact that your life is supposed to have. And this series is going to empower you to do it. And people are going to begin to experience the presence of God because you begin to let the presence of God flow out of your life. Amen? Okay. You ready? Rest. Come on, just say it. Say it. Come on, say it one more time. Come on, it, it tastes good on the palate of your soul, doesn't it? Even just when we say the word, it just, it kind of sets us at ease. I believe that rest is just as important to God as any of these other 12. One of the things that we believe here at the City Life Church is that you can't prioritize these things. God says you got to have all of them at work in your life. You can pick a couple and have a measure of life flowing into you and have a measure of life flowing out of you. The Bible teaches if you want to have all of the life that God wants to give you flowing into you, you got to be tracking all 12 of these. And by the same token, if you're going to have the impact that you're supposed to have on the world, you need all 12 of these flowing out of you. You don't pick the two that you like the best. You don't pick the five that you're the most comfortable with. Because there is a spiritual side to every one of us, we say do not deny the eternal part of who you are, any one of these 12, and certainly don't deny the life that you're supposed to give to the world by holding any one of them back. And I'm telling you, rest to God is sacred. So if you've ever picked a week to fall asleep in church, you have my permission to fall asleep tonight. The ushers are under strict orders. Don't wake anybody up when we're teaching on rest, okay? All right. Just kidding. So let me ask you these nine questions. What if a person that you knew professed to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? I mean, said, I'm a Christian. I mean, I I took a stand. I prayed a prayer. I'm living my life i'm a christian it defines me but yet when you begin to follow them around as you begin to get to know them that they worship other gods and actively participate in other religions as you follow them around and get to know them you begin to realize they make idols in their garage come on sell them on ebay pray to them worship them what would you think of that person What if they spoke with profanity, especially using God's name and Jesus' name as a curse word? They speak disrespectfully to their parents and speak of them publicly in derogatory ways, openly endorse murder out of vengeance and anger as being appropriate, practice an open marriage relationship with their spouse, believe that dishonesty for personal gain is just a natural part of life. Giving false testimony was okay because most people are guilty of something and envying your neighbor's possessions is a great way to motivate yourself to get more stuff. What would you think of a person who professed Christianity, but these nine things characterize them? What would you think? Come on, what's the big H word? Come on, hypocrite, right? Of course they would be a hypocrite. Their confession is not in keeping with their course. They proclaim one thing, but their life declares something else. Where did we get these nine questions? From where? From the Ten Commandments. How many are there? Come on, there's ten. But yet how many of us, come on, be honest with yourself, how many of you, if a person professed Christianity, but never sought after rest, would you have the same reaction in your heart towards them as if they violated one of these? We wouldn't, would we? Come on! I bet none of us here, in, none of us here in this room, would feel in our heart that that person is walking in hypocrisy because they forsake rest. Why is that? Because the culture of the world in which we live and have been living for centuries has desensitized us to one of the great commandments that God has given to the world. And I believe with all of my heart that one of the messages that this church is supposed to have in the world today is to rediscover a sense of sacredness, to rediscover a sense of holiness, to rediscover a sense of there being Ten Commandments and no longer nine. And that as a church we're going to preach rest, we're going to practice rest, we're going to be an example for rest. And we want to say to God, find in us a resolve and a devotion to be a commandment of ten people and not a commandment of nine. And that we would take rest and put it back where it belongs on this list of questions. And that our heart would prick with conviction every time we forsake it for ourselves and when we see someone else forsaking it for them. When the world was perfect, our perfect God rested and he invited all of creation to experience a perfect rest with him. Of which therefore, paternal, purpose, physical and perpetual. We're going to talk about those tonight. Giving our lives flow. It's important that we realize that when we turn to the book of Genesis in the beginning of time... Rest was not something that God instituted in the world after Adam and Eve committed the first sin. It was a part of Eden while Eden was still perfect. Rest was something that God instituted as part of his plan for a perfect utopia. Rest is one of the ways that we can reach back, come on, and taste something of paradise lost. We can't go back to Eden. Come on, the Bible tells us there's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming to us, and while we're waiting for the fulfillment of what God has been working towards, the culmination of his master plan in the universe, he says, I'm going to give you a taste of Eden until you get there. It's why I established rest. In the beginning of time, when it says that God rested, he wasn't just talking about a rest from his physical labor, although he was talking about that in part, and we're going to get to that tonight, but he was talking about a rest that comes through a paternal rest, or a life-defining relationship with him. He was talking about a purpose rest because he gave Adam and Eve a responsibility. He gave them the responsibility to have dominion over the earth. There was a rest that came to them as they walked out their purpose and there was a rest, a perpetual rest. It was the hope, come on, the tree of life that sustained them forever when you read in the book of revelation we find a new jerusalem come on that tree is there there is a rest that we will taste of forever and ever and ever and ever because we're going to live in eternity with him rest is something that's sacred it's perfect i want to introduce all four of them to you tonight and then i want to talk about how each one of them specifically is an outflow of life from us into the world around us in hebrews 4 is the great chapter in the bible where you learn about rest Hebrews 4 is the great chapter in the Bible that talks to us about all four aspects of rest because we don't want you to just have part of the rest. We want you to have all the rest. Are you with me? We want you to have all of it. Derek had his first sleepover the other night. We're moving on his birthday, so we said, you know, what can we do to celebrate your birthday? And he said, I want to have a couple of friends over. I want to stay up all night. And we said, "Ah, oh, come on, all right. So we went to the store, we bought a big old thing, a Mountain Dew, big old thing. Come on, if they're going to stay up all night, right? we got to help our child, train up your child in the way that he should go. They need to discover caffeine. Usually there's limits, right, at our house about soda and sugar and caffeine. That night we took off the limits, took off the gloves. We said, you can eat as much candy and drink as much caffeinated soda as you want. We thought maybe they'll make it to like 1 in the morning, right, 1.30, I was in bed by midnight. I was going to try to hang with him at least for a little while, right? But I'm 44. I'm like, oh, I'm out of here. Good luck, boys. You're on your own. So they watched The Lord of the Rings. I made it through that, that three-hour movie. Then they moved on to The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And I thought that's when I went to bed about halfway through that. I thought they would be soon to follow. Come on. They, they didn't go to bed till about 6.30 that morning. Stayed up the whole night. And we said, you, you can have whatever soda you want. with No limits. Because as a child, you live most of your life with limits, right? One of my favorite things to do is walk into the candy aisle of a store. You hear me talk about this all the time. I like to stand in there and say, I could buy one of each of everything in here if I wanted to. I have my own money. I do not have to call my mother to get permission. All the ca- I could have it all if I wanted to. Do you know that there's times in life where God puts limits for your safety, for your protection? He puts boundaries. But you know there's some times where he says there are no limits. You can have as much as you want. And rest is one of those things that we've let a secular culture rob us of. A rest thief has snuck into our life and put boundaries that don't belong there. Where God says to us, I want you to have all the rest without limit. Relational rest, purpose rest, physical rest perpetual rest. He wants you to have it all. No boundaries, tasting of every part, And so he inspires the writer of Hebrews. It's one of the few books in the Bible. We don't know who the author was. We just have the title of it. And through the title of it, we know that someone was writing to young Jewish converts in the first century and trying to help them to begin to understand the foundational principles of this burgeoning faith called Christianity, which means those who follow after Christ, the disciples of Christ. And so here in the fourth chapter, this writer is trying to help these young believers who probably were identified. A lot of Christian historians believe they were identified as a group of teachers who were studying to learn to be teachers of this newfound faith. And right here in chapter 4, the Holy Spirit inspires this writer, teach them about rest because just as it's in play today, come on, it was in play centuries before and we want to get it back into life. Hebrews chapter 4, 2 through 3, that top verse right up here, it says, for this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, but it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listen to God, for only we who believe can enter his rest. And then you jump down to verse 9, it says, so there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. Because the people of the Jewish faith had one understanding, one concept for rest, and that was a physical rest. That's all that they really embraced and taught The writer of Hebrews is saying, oh, there's so much more. In fact, where he starts is with the rest that really gives us access to all that remain, that it's a paternal rest. There is a rest that comes to your soul when you're living your life in pursuit of a life-defining relationship with your creator to the point where he becomes a father. So many people live in this world, they have a belief in a God, they have a belief in a higher power, they believe that he created the world and that he's ordering the universe, but they have no sense of believing that there's hope to have a life-defining relationship with him. They have no hope of of knowing that, that, that they can wake up every day knowing God is their best and closest friend. That's what he promises us. And when we step into that relationship, a relationship that's only made possible through his son, Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, there is a sense of peace, there is a sense of rest that floods your soul that is indescribable. I remember in December of 1990, when I made a vow of devotion for Jesus Christ, come on like Scotty, came forward and made that big step last Saturday, I remember the very next day that I woke up, I'm telling you, there was a peace that was deep in my heart that I had never tasted in all of my life. There is a rest that comes when we can say, God, I know I don't always get it right, but I know that you smile upon me. You're not just my creator. You are my father. Do you know him? Come on, the second one, this idea of a physical rest. In Hebrews 4, the second part of the fourth verse, it says, the place in the scriptures, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Genesis 2 On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. We're gonna get into that a lot, a little bit more than the other ones tonight, because I think that's one of the ones that we've forgotten the most. But it asks us the question Do I have a Sabbath day every seven days? If you're not giving your body one day out of every seven to rejuvenate, you're working against the order of the universe. We all understand physics. We've been doing some tweeting this week, the physics of the soul. We need to understand the physics of in here. And if, and if you're not giving yourself rest, you're denying your body what it's desperate to have. If you were to stop eating, you would die. If you were to stop breathing, you would die. If your heart were to stop beating, you would die. And I'm telling you, some of you, you've got a physical life, but your spiritual life is dying because you do not give your body rest. It's sacred It's by God's design. Don't deny it. We're going to talk about that more tonight. Your purpose rest, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. The writer of Hebrews is introducing this idea of a paternal rest by comparing it and contrasting it to other rests. If you read the whole chapter, it says, Now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest... God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. This is talking about the idea that there's a rest that comes to us when we're walking in the purpose that God has given to us. Joshua had a very distinct purpose. He had a very distinct calling. And we believe that every one of you here tonight has a very distinct purpose. Every one of you here tonight has a very distinct calling. We read in the Bible about these people that are highlighted, not so that God can say to us, don't you wish I would have picked you, He puts their story in the Bible to stir faith in their heart that just as he chose them, he chose you. And just as he had a calling for them, he's got a calling for you. And just as he imparted them gifts and abilities to fulfill their purpose, he's got gifts and abilities that he's going to impart to you to fulfill your purpose. There is a purpose rest that we walk in. There is a rest in the soul that comes deep inside when we know that we know that we know that we're fulfilling the work that God has entrusted to our life. Perpetual rest, Hebrews 4, 10 through 11. says, for all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors. I'm going to stop there. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of two things. Sometimes there's dual meanings in scriptures. He's talking about this idea of physical rest, but he's using the idea of physical rest to remind us of something deeper. He's talking about this idea of stopping from our labor. This idea of, in our humanity, trying to work our way into God's good graces. He's saying to us, you cannot labor your way into a relationship with God. It comes by grace and grace alone. Jesus died on the cross so that we could know forgiveness from all of our past and have a hope of being reconciled to him. When we were doing our baptisms just a couple of weeks ago, we, we were praying and believing that God was going to impart something into our heart to share with the people that were in the water, each one something different. And one of the uh, people that was out there, we were talking with them about how we were right there in the York River and how there's the Coleman Bridge, you know, that spans the York River. And we were talking about how that's what Jesus Christ is for us. He spans the gap. We're on this side. We want to be with God on that side. We can't get across the chasm of sin, and Jesus Christ lays his life down as a bridge for us to be reconciled to a life eternally with our Father in heaven. We cannot do it on our own, and the writer of Hebrews here is introducing to these young Jewish believers the concept of grace, that if we want to have the hope of heaven, if we want to have this question resolved in our heart that when we breathe our last, that we're going to spend an eternity with him, it only comes through Jesus Christ. And when it does come, we enter into what I like to call a perpetual rest. We get a little bit of a foretaste of what's waiting for us. There's nothing certain for anybody in this room except for one thing, and that's that one day we're all going to die. Come on, it's it's not a very inspiring thought, is it? It's the only certain thing for every one of us that one day we will breathe our last. And in that moment when we breathe our last, we're all going to stand before God and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And what we did with his son, Jesus Christ, in this life is going to dictate to us what forever's going to be. And I'm telling you, once that's settled in your heart in this life, there is a rest that's like none other that sinks deep inside of you when heaven is promised to you. For some of you, you have a, a hope of having a relationship with God and that gives you a, a measure of rest. Maybe you're running after something you feel like God's asked you to do and that gives you a measure of rest. Maybe you're practicing this idea of a weekly Sabbath and that gives you a measure of rest. But when you sit down in the quietness of life, when you're by yourself and you don't know whether or not heaven is promised to you after you breathe your last, there is a restlessness inside of you that will never be resolved until you deal with that question and you deal with it through a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ. There's going to be a moment at the end of the service, come on tonight, where you're going to be able to take that step. We want that question settled for each of you so that you can walk in all the rest that he has for you, not just part of it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 5 through 6, this is great two verses. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. The writer of Ecclesiastes here is talking about idleness. He's talking about laziness. See, there's a kind of life that looks like it's restful, but come on, laziness is not rest. Consumes us. Then he goes on to verse 6. Better is one handful. One handful of what? One handful of material wealth. It's better to have one handful of material wealth with the rest that we're talking about tonight than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. It's better to go through this life and have a little bit less, but have the things that are sacred than it is to have everything that this life has to offer and have nothing eternal. in rest is something that's eternal, it's something that's sacred, and it will require you, listen to me, it will require you to forego a measure of a standard of living because if you could have worked that extra day, you could have made a little bit more money, you could have bought a few more things, but God says the rest that I want you to have, come on, choose that, choose something eternal over something temporal. And as you're gonna to see tonight, if you don't make that choice, not only do you rob yourself of a measure of life that he wants you to have, you rob the world around you of a flow of life that's supposed to come out of you. All right, so let's do the first one. As I'm at rest in my paternal relationship, others decrease. Is I'm at rest in my paternal relationship, meaning that when I'm pursuing a life-defining, passion-filled, moment-by-moment governing relationship with my Father in heaven, one of the great gifts that I give to the world is that I let other people decrease in my life. What's that mean? It means when I stop looking to others to meet needs in my life that only God can fulfill, I release them from impossible emotional demands, my life shifting from drought to flow, others decrease. If we're not in this paternal relationship with God, where we know Him as our Father, and we're looking to Him as our primary relationship in our lives, if we're not doing that, I guarantee you, you're placing emotional demands on other people that they cannot meet. In Ecclesiastes, it also talks about how God put eternity in the heart of man, which means that there's a certain need that only God can fill through his relationship with you. And if you don't have that relationship, it doesn't mean that you're not sensitive to that need. It means just the opposite. You're wandering through this life restless and hungry for that void, for that hole to be filled. And everything you try might satisfy it in the beginning, but eventually it just falls away. Careers, successes, victories, promotions, relationships, love, parenting, material possession. Come on, we keep trying to fill that void, but there's only one thing that can fill that void, and that's our Father in heaven, our creator. And until we step into that relationship, we are going to continue to make demands of people and pursuits around us that they were not intended to satisfy. For some of you tonight, I'm telling you, Your marriage struggles because you're looking to your husband or you're looking to your wife to do something inside of you that only God can do. For some of you, you're estranged from your children because you're looking to your children to meet a relational need in your life that only God can meet. For some of you, you're frustrated in your workplace because you're looking for your vocation to satisfy something inside of you that only God can do. Listen to these verses. It's in John chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptized since John, this is speaking of John the Baptist, had not yet been thrown into prison. And then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. And so they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one speaking of Jesus that you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. John responded, No one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah But I've been sent ahead of him, and he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's good, isn't it? What's John the Baptist saying? He's saying what we're saying. Hundreds of years before, he was saying it then as we're saying it now there is something that only God can do for people that no one else can ever do. And people in your life who are devoted followers of Christ, who maybe you're demanding more of than you should, you know what they're saying to you if they're good friends? Hey, God is the only one who can meet that need in your life. I'm willing to decrease a little bit so that he can increase to the measure that he can to fulfill the emotional needs in your life. And the same text works the other way. We can't be the one in the story that runs up to John the Baptist and saying, I, I want to continue to look to you to meet these needs in my life. I want to look to a spiritual leader or a pastor or a life group leader or a ministry director or some person on TV that I like to listen to. Come on, those we're all just people. And we can meet a measure of needs in our lives. We're going to get to that when we talk about relationships. The first weekend in August... But there's something that only God can do. And we need to let him do everything that he can. And you know what is the interesting thing? As we let other relationships and others' pursuits decrease so that he can increase, it actually makes all of those things better. The kingdom is counterintuitive. But if we trust him, if we'll follow after it, our life only and always gets better. All right, number two. When I'm at rest in my purposed role, others thrive when I'm at rest in my purposed role, others thrive. What's that mean? It means this. When I start engaging my talents and abilities in my church, I elevate the ministry of everyone around me and my life begins to shift from drain to flow. Others thrive. Whatever church you call home, If you've not fully engaged yourself with your abilities, your passion, with the things that God has gifted you with, if you've not put them in play in the church that you call home, you might think, you know what, I'm not really hurting anybody but myself, and that's what gives you a sense of permission to stay in that place, but what we want you to know tonight, that's not true. Not only are you robbing yourself of the life, come on, the pathway of service gives to you, but you're robbing the world around you of the life that's supposed to flow from you if you're not putting your gifts and talents in play, other people's gifts and talents aren't thriving because you're missing. It's not just that they're missing the gift that you bring, but how God designed the kingdom, he refers to it as a body. They can't fulfill their purpose unless you're fulfilling your purpose. It's called mutual dependency. Come on, one of the verses, we're not gonna read it. You can read the chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, but I wanna give you Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. It says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Listen to what he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you are, that's each of us, are also being built, what, together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. How many people here live in a house? Come on, an apartment, a condominium, a townhome, something. If there were no water pipes in your house, no matter how pretty the faucet was that you picked out at Home Depot, its purpose can't be fulfilled unless it's connected to the pipe. It can look great, that handle might just be as smooth as silk. But if the pipes aren't in there, it can't fulfill its function. You can have the fanciest light switches in the whole world. If there's no wire connected on the back side of it. You can flip that thing up and down all the way, but it will not fulfill its purpose. He uses the picture of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, but you also find it all throughout scriptures. He uses this idea of building because people understand bodies. People understand buildings. People understand in those contexts the concept of mutual dependency. If you withhold your gift from the church and the church family that you call home, other people cannot fully do everything that God's asking them to do because you're supposed to be connected to your life and your gift is supposed to be around them. This could have been the a horrible tragedy of a song tonight you with me if there was no sound person back there making the mix just right for your ears it would have been a horrible tragedy if the people that are responsible for putting all the chairs down didn't quite get them right or their projectors were broken you, you fought, you're tracking with me if none of the nursery workers showed up and all of those crying babies were in here while kevin was singing that song you you you're tracking with me It had the potential to be something great, but it was something great, not just because of what they did, but because of what everybody else did around them to make their gift complete. You have a gift that you're supposed to unleash on the family of God, and it makes others thrive when you do. All right, number three. We're gonna do this one a little bit longer than the other ones. When I'm at rest in my physical relief, others relax. When I'm at rest, Come on, it's contagious and enables other people to step into a place of rest that otherwise would escape them. Only through giving my body the rejuvenation it demands will I be the calm in the storm that Jesus commands. My life shifting from dry to flow, others relax. We're going to dig into that text in just a few minutes. If you do not give your physical body the rest that you need, you will be incapable of stepping into the moments of ministry that God's going to call you to, to bring peace to other people's lives in the calm of the storm. As we're going to see in the story that we're going to look at in just a minute. Not only is Jesus the person that stands up in your boat and says, peace be still, you're supposed to be the presence of Christ in other people's lives that stands up in the midst of their storm and say, peace be still. And if you don't give yourself the rest that you need, you will be inadequate in that moment, and you will rob other people of the flow of life that's supposed to be coming out of you. John Ortberg is one of my favorite authors. This is a book. Great. I just dropped it. Chapter 4, it's right in here. All right, here we go. d Day. It says, some time ago I was giving a bath to our three children. I had a custom of bathing them together more to save time than anything else. And I knew that eventually I would have to stop the group bathing, but for the time being it seemed efficient. Johnny was still in the tub, and Laura was out and safely in her pajamas, and I was trying to get Mallory dried off, and Mallory was out of the water, but was doing what has come to be known in our family as the dee da day dance. This consists of her running around and around in circles, singing over and over again, dee da day dee da day it's a relatively simple dance expressing great joy, and when she is too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has to dance to release her joy, so she does the d da day dance. And on this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry up! I prodded, so she did. She began running in circles faster and faster and chanting dida day more rapidly. No, Mallory, that's not what I mean. Stop with the deed Day day stuff and get over here so I can draw you off. Hurry. And then she asked a profound question. Why? I had no answer. I had nowhere to go. Nothing to do, no meeting to attend, no sermons to write. I was just so used to hurrying, so preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another, that here was life, here was joy, here was an invitation to dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. So I got up. Mallory and I did the De dance together. She said I was pretty good, too, for a man my age. If you're not giving yourself rest, the rest that you're supposed to give to others, it will not be given, and their life will lack, especially within our families. Carl Bart, a theological giant, a bit different stream than us. He's in the Reformed camp, but a man that garners respect nonetheless. He says, let things take their course in writing about Sabbaths, with particular freedom from distinct. From weekday practice to as much or as little as the day brings, it should be a day that's free from compulsion. You should have one day every week that's absolutely free from compulsion. One day every seven days where you can wake up and say, I'm going to do what I want as it comes. If you're married, if you've got children, it might take some planning. It might mean that, that you've got to organize yourself a little bit. But it means that even the plans that you make, this feeling that you have, and I have the other six days of being driven to accomplish something, you have to set it aside. It's interesting in Exodus 20, verses eight through 11, we're not gonna read it, i put that up there for you if you're a note taker, you wanna write that down. But it's where God's talking to Moses about the idea of a Sabbath and the Hebrew word is Shabbat. And it means to cease. It means to desist. It means to stop. So if the day that you're saying is a Sabbath day doesn't look any different from any of the other six days, it's not a Shabbat. There's a stopping of this, whatever this is for you, so that something different can happen so that you can wake up on the other side of that day feeling refreshed and rejuvenated and replenished. It doesn't mean that you have to be sedentary. For some of you, you're invigorated through activity. The measure is, how do you feel when you wake up the next day? And it should look different from every other day that you have. That's what makes it a Sabbath. He uses another word when he talks about he made it holy. It's the Hebrew word kadash. It means it's sacred. And that's an important word in the text because it's supposed to help us to remember that it belongs in the 10. It's sin if we don't. It's important that we understand it. We recognize that all of the other nine, if we forsake them, we've committed an egregious offense against the heart of God. We've committed an egregious offense against the heart of God if we forsake the 10th commandment, rest. And the other word that he uses there for rest itself is the Hebrew word nuach. I love this one. It means comfortable, convenient, and easygoing. You with me? Just hearing those words, it brings rest to you, doesn't it? One day, every week, comfortable, convenient, easygoing, a day free from compulsion. Give your body the rest that you need so that you can give the life to the world that you're supposed to give. Matthew chapter 8. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 8. This is a great story. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23. Let's start there. It says, as he got into the boat, come on, boatings of God, his disciples followed him. Suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up. See, it's a brave thing to wake somebody up from a nap. But when he's the creator of the universe, that takes boldness. You with me? So they wake him up. Saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. But he said to them, why are you fearful, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. I'll tell you what kind of man he was. He was a man who napped. You look at that story like so many other people look at that story and think the napping part is maybe just God having a sense of humor. You look at that story and think maybe that's just something a little extra just to kind of create the picture for us because of the situation the disciples were in. But I'm telling you it's the cornerstone of the story. I'm telling you it's because Jesus believed in the 10th commandment He had what he needed to step into the moment of the storm and minister the way that he needed to minister. I'm telling you, this idea of him sleeping in the boat is given to us as an example to follow. One out of every seven days, if you are not giving yourself the rest that you need, it will impact your prayer life. If you're not giving yourself the rest that you need, it impacts your faith level. We said it last week, it's not coincidental. It's causal. Jesus was able to minister and move for lots of reasons, but one of them on the list is because he's a man who believed in the practice of a Sabbath. He's a man who believed in the idea of rest. It's a man because he created these bodies. John 1 says nothing was made that was made that he didn't make. He created these bodies. He understood their limitations. We need to understand the limitation of our physical body and that work against the physics of the universe, the physics of the soul. And give our bodies the opportunity to refresh and restart and rejuvenate. Because if you don't, you will end up being like the disciples in the boat, clamoring in the face of difficult times because you're just worn out. Give yourself rest. Oh, let me go back. Hold on a minute. Mark 2.27. This is important. This is one of the verses that people so often use to legitimize and justify forsaking rest. It's where Jesus says that that the Sabbath was made for man, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. And so people take that to mean that God's given me a choice. I don't have to rest if I don't want to because it's a gift that he's offering me and I'm just choosing not to accept it. Because in our culture, in our society, if someone gives you a gift, it's not an affront or not an offense to to humbly say no thank you. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. We never have the freedom to say no to any gift that our creator offers to us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it talks about salvation being a what? Being a gift. Do you think there's any consequences if you say no thank you to that one? The idea of gifts in scripture, or to let us know that there's things that we cannot earn. There's things that we cannot of our own doing and of our own ability acquire apart from the grace and the mercy of God. Any gift that God offers to us, it's not to teach us that we have the right to refuse it, but to remind us that we're inadequate and incapable of getting it ourselves unless he gave it to us. The idea of a gift in scripture is to demonstrate to us that there's some things that we will only possess if he hands it over to us. And so he hands over to us a command. He hands over to us a promise. If you give your body a moment of rest, one day out of every seven, you're going to be able to be a life force in this world world that you'll surprise yourself with. All right, come on, this is our last one. When I'm at rest in a perpetual realm, others follow. When I'm at rest in my perpetual realm, others follow. This idea of having heaven promised to us isn't just about us. Listen to me. It's not just about us. It's about all the other people who need to know that heaven can be promised to them. And oftentimes, the way that they begin their journey is by following after our example. A life lived that is both full and forever creates an eternal current in our temporal world that is irresistibly alluring to all around us. My life shifting from death to flow, others follow. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back, so we're gonna close the service out with a song tonight. In Luke 10:20, 20, it's where Jesus says that we shouldn't celebrate that, by being a part of God's family, that there's supernatural power that's promised to us. What we should celebrate is that our name is written in what's called the Lamb's Book of Life, that our name's been recorded in a book of heaven so that when we do breathe our last, that we know what's waiting for us on the other side. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let anyone who hears this say, Come! Let anyone who is thirsty, come on, come and let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Death is certain for us all. Come on, stand with me. It's certain for us all. And if you're here tonight, if you're here tonight and you can't say for sure, what's waiting for you on the other side of that last breath, you can know for sure tonight. You can know for sure. Jesus teaches us that if we give our heart to him this side of that last breath, then we need not wonder what waits for us in an eternal realm. There is a rest that some of you have never tasted of. There is a peace that some of you have never felt. There is a certainty deep inside of you that has eluded you all the days of your life because you're just not sure what waits for you on the other side. I haven't tasted of that uncertainty since I was 23 years old. And I'm telling you to be able to lay your head down on your pillow every night saying that, come on, God, if you call me home on this night that I sleep, I need not wonder where I'll be. I'm going to be with you forever. And I'm just saying to you tonight, every service this summer, we're going to close our service the same way because we know that some of you here, you don't know the answer to that question. We know that some of you here, you're not sure. Come on, you can be sure tonight. And as we sing this song, I'm just going to tell you, as we sing this song, If you look deep into your heart and you're not sure what waits for you on the other side, I'm going to invite you to take some and find some courage tonight. I'm going to invite you as we sing this song that you're just going to find a place at this altar. You might choose to kneel. You might choose to stand. But it's your way of saying, Jesus, my life belongs to you. I came into this building not knowing. What would await me on the other side, but I want to leave here with a sense of certainty. I want to leave here with a kind of rest that's a perpetual rest, the kind of rest that I'll never have to chase after again because I know the question is settled for me. If that's you tonight, if you need to settle that question in your heart, I'm just saying at some point, at some point, move your feet. Find yourself up here. Find yourself in the embrace of heaven and find a rest deep in your soul. Let's worship together.
1: All things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. You make all things. Work together for my good You may all things Work together for my good You may all things Work together for my good You may all things Work together for my good You make all things work together for my good. You stay, you stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. I'm allowed to be afraid because I know that you love me. You'll never. Fails. And your love never changes The may be pain in the night But joy comes in the morning And when the oceans rage I don't have to be afraid Because I know that you love me You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good.
0: Can you guys just show some love to Becca tonight for having some courage? Come on. Come on, you can do better than that. Come on. It takes courage to take those steps. All right, so before we close, I'm just hanging it out there just for a couple of more seconds. Come on, it's not too late. You can move your feet. Anybody else? Say, I want, I want to know when I breathe my last what waits for me. I'm telling you, there's a rest that waits for you that's absolutely indescribable. Jesus. Father, we say tonight that we celebrate for a life that's been born in a heart today. We celebrate, Father, for the question of heaven for one more person. The answer's been resolved. And we say let it be for Becca tonight that there's going to be a peace and a rest that comes deep inside of her that maybe has been escaping her her whole life. Let it be, oh come on God, something supernatural, something otherworldly, something that's a profoundly from the hand of God that would rest upon her life a child born inside that's gonna grow and mature and chase after the things of God like she chases after nothing else, that there's gonna be a current that's set forth in her circles of friends, that there's going to be a witness that rises up, that a John 1 chapter of the gospel of Christ is gonna be the story of her example, that in her is life, and that life is gonna be the light of the world. In Jesus' name, and everybody said together. Come on. Everybody said together. I hope tomorrow you have a DDA day. We'll see you next week.
1: You may all things work together for my good. You made all things work together for my good. You made all things work together for my good. You made all things work together for my good. You made all things work together for my good.